Before we dive into this powerful episode with the legend himself, Michael McKnight, I want to first tell you about our sponsors. You hear me talk about it all the time, that recovery is just as important as training, and that's why I use Soothe Organic CBD. Soothe Organic CBD is a premium USDA certified organic CBD company based in Colorado. I personally know the owners of the company and I've been using their products for months. Soothe Organic offers a variety of delivery methods personalized for your specific training needs. You can get topical CBD cream, CBD oil tinctures, capsules, and gummies. I personally love the organic strawberry lemonade gummies. They taste fantastic and they're an easy way for me to kickstart my recovery after a race or a hard training session with 25 milligrams of CBD. Thanks to the help of Soothe Organic CBD, I can confidently tackle my toughest workouts without having to fear fatigue or side effects during my recovery. Through my own experience with Soothe Organic CBD, I spend far less time recovering and I can get back to work much faster. Use my code SOOTHEWITHJEREMY for 20% off your first order at SOOTHEORGANIC.COM. This year, I'm really making sure to take better care of myself before and after my workouts. And one of the areas that I know I have the most room to improve on is getting enough sleep and making sure that it's high quality. Lagoon has helped me improve my sleep immensely by pairing me with a performance pillow that has everything that I need. Through Lagoon's two-minute online quiz, I was matched with the Puffin Pillow, which I love because it helps regulate my body temperature through the night, and it's fully adjustable. This means that I can add or remove the filling to get my body adjustment just right. I tend to get very hot when I sleep, so I love having a high quality pillow that keeps me cool at night. Thanks to my Lagoon pillow, waking up from my morning runs has never felt better. I feel refreshed and pain-free. I also fall asleep almost instantly when my head hits the pillow at night. Go to lagoonsleep.com Jeremy and take their two-minute sleep quiz to find your match for your perfect pillow. Use the code Jeremy for 15% off your first purchase at Lagoon Sleep. You know I take my running fuel seriously and I'm very intentional with it. That's why I was ecstatic when I found 2 Before Performance Nutrition. 2 Before is a New Zealand-based company on a mission to help elite and everyday athletes thrive and in their chosen sporting endeavors through the power of one smart berry, the New Zealand Black Current. You can say goodbye to synthetic stimulants, jitters, and crashes that often come with your typical pre-workout powders or gels, and say hello to natural plant-based pre-workout made from blackcurrant berries. Blackcurrants are science-backed and benefit-packed berries that have been proven to increase endurance, speed up muscle recovery, and strengthen immunity. I started incorporating two before into my pre-run fueling routine before a hard speed workout or a long run, and I can truly feel the difference. I feel like I can sustain faster paces and push harder for longer during my workouts or races. It also helps speed up my recovery significantly. Use my code JMiller for $10 off your order at twobefore.com. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Miller. Every week, I chat with fascinating people from all walks of life in order to bring you knowledge, inspiration, and insight. If you enjoy the show, you can support it by subscribing, leaving a review, and sharing it with a friend. This is the Jeremy Miller Podcast. All right, dude, I'm super excited. How are you feeling? Good, man. It's finally warming up here, so that makes me happy. <laughs> yeah, dude, I... uh. Uh, I'm from Casper, Wyoming originally, and I don't know if you spend much time there, but they got a record amount of snow, like it, within a, a single calendar day, like last uh-huh. week, I, I think it was like three feet. I mean, did you guys got probably part of the same storm? I'm sure. Right. Yep. <laughs> yeah. It was, um, our grass was starting to show green and then it <clears throat> basically was half the, the size of my fence, which is a six oh, foot man. fence. So yeah, we got about three feet too. That's nuts. Mike McKnight, the low carb runner. Welcome to the podcast, dude. I'm super happy to have you here. Thanks for having me, Jeremy. Appreciate it, man. So I got to start this off by saying one, you are just an absolute badass. Like 
all the stuff that you've been doing. Like I, I've really only been following you recently and the, just the stuff that I've seen you do and you're know, going on your website and seeing all these amazing accomplishments you've done. It's just so impressive. And as far as I know, you're like at the, right at the top, as far as, you know, ultra and endurance athletes. So just got to start off by saying kudos to, to everything you've done. Well, thank you. I don't know if I agree that I'm at the top, but thank you. <laughs> Um, I want to dive into like your, your origins and, and what got you into doing all these quote unquote crazy endurance events, because there's not many people out there that are willing to do them and, and do them as well as you. So like, just take me all the way back to where you first got into running and then we can kind of go from there. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> my introduction is a typical, um, I, I grew up on a dairy farm. I was overweight, um, I had a lot of trauma in my past, which is why I gained some weight. And then I just was never really physically active. And then when I turned 16, I started running just to lose weight. <clears throat> Once I lost the weight, I stopped running just because I associated running with losing weight. It wasn't something to be enjoyed. It was something I had to do because I let myself go basically. Um, so I stopped running basically all the way until I was about 21 years old <clears throat> when I first started going to college. And then I just decided I want to get back in shape. I didn't gain my weight back, but I still wasn't really in shape in my opinion. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, you can look good and not be in shape. <laughs> yep. And so I just started to start running again. And, uh, to make a very long story short, I just, when I like really started to appreciate it, just when I really started to, like I had a goal to walk onto the track team at the college I was going to, <clears throat> like just when all that started to happen, I ended up breaking my back in a skiing accident. And this was about 2012. Yeah. Uh, February of 2012. And so I, I shattered my L1 vertebrae. <clears throat> was almost paralyzed. I, I had to go get emergency surgery where they put in, it was, man, it was uh, two rods and nine screws, which is still in my spine today. Um, but my first question was to my doctor was when I could start running again, just because I started getting into it at that point. And he essentially told me that I needed to like drop out of, not drop out of college, but, um, I always forget what the term's called in, incomplete your classes. I mm. think yeah. where basically I deferred them for a full year until I was better. <clears throat> so he told me to incomplete my classes for a year. Uh, I lost my job. He told me I should move in with my parents so they could take care of me and all this stuff. Like I had a walker, I had a, uh, like those like braces for my torso that's like designed specifically for my torso like they like put this plastic around me and poured some like plastic i don't know what it is but it basically formed to my body so it was exactly to how like the shape of my body he, he told me not to run for about a year um but long story short i started running again about three weeks after my Holy surgery <laughs> three weeks uh, three weeks <laughs> Um, I ended up signing up for a charity 10 K, which was about six weeks post-surgery. Um, I ran that, that 10 K with my brace on and everything. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Do you have any photos of that? I want to see pictures of that. <laughs> I have pictures of the brace, but not of me running in it. <laughs> I wish I did. I, I kicked myself in the butt for not documenting <laughs> that. <laughs> Dude. Holy cow. So, wow. You said a lot right there. I feel <laughs> like we, we glazed over so much. Um, so you, you ran, in in high school or or college or, or where did you like initially start running just kind of was it competitively or just for fun so i ran in high school to lose weight and then i started running right. in college okay. to get okay. in shape and then i probably started training for like a month like intense training for about a month and a half to like get myself ready to walk onto the track team that spring okay. 
Um, so it was about probably like eight months. I was like actually training hard and trying to become a better runner before I broke my back. Basically my, my physical therapy, he told me just to walk a mile a day and where I grew up, where my parents were like, or where my parents are still, it's this small farming town, like hardly anybody out there. So I would just go walk on this road, um, up to the cemetery where my parents lived and back. And that was exactly a mile. Um, was this so in Utah? I, yeah. Northern Utah, okay. Okay. <clears throat> basically Idaho. My parents are like a mile from the Idaho border. Okay. Um, so yeah, I started doing that every day and just like within that first week, like, so my first mile walk after breaking my back took me like an hour and a half. It was just like weird. Like my back felt weird and like my legs were kind of cramped up and stuff. So it was very slow. And so like that first week I just kept setting these goals to like get faster at that mile walk. So with, at the end of that first week, I shaved it down from like an hour and a half to like 45 minutes or 40 minutes or something. Middle of the second week, I got it down to about 20 minutes And then I ended up ditching the walker and just started doing it with like a cane. And so for that second week, I started using the cane, but I also started increasing my mileage. So, you know, I, I did two miles one day, then three miles one day. And by the end of that second week, I was walking six miles. Um, and again, mind you, like I didn't have school. My, my friends were in school. I didn't have a job, so I had nothing to do. So I had all the time in the world to just go walk if I wanted to. <laughs> Um, what, what did the doctor say when did you did you just show up one day and be like, yeah, I've, I've been walking miles and miles, even though you know I, I could could even walk a mile. I've never told him. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'd be curious what his reaction would be. I know he's but, still he's still a surgeon here. Like I still live where it happens. So I wow. like every podcast I do where people ask me about my back, like I always say I need to go talk to him and tell him how good of a job he did. But then I just forget about yeah. it. <laughs> That's um, incredible. So but yeah, uh, so. so Go ahead. As basically, so like, you know, six miles walking with a cane, without a cane, like I ditched the cane. And then I was just like, you know what? I'm going to try running, see what happens. So I went out and ran half a mile and like, it didn't hurt any worse. It felt weird. Like it probably took me like 10 to 20 minutes to do that half mile because I was going super slow and conservative, but I mean, it didn't hurt. So I just started running more and more and ran every day after that. And Three weeks after that is when I did that 10K. Was it was that 10K? Is that your first official race you ever did? Yep. <laughs> wow, dude, that's that's. Well, I didn't no, know no, any no. of that. Okay. Sorry, I did do a half marathon before that. <clears throat> okay, man. How how did the 10K go? Was it? Uh, I'm sure that was very emotional to like probably you know go from less than a month later. You think, wow, I might not ever be able to walk again, or it's going to take me a year before I can run again. And now you're running a 6.2 mile race. Yeah, it was emotional. Like, um, I mean, everybody was telling me not to do it, especially my parents, like rightfully so. Um, but I mean, honestly, the hardest part was I had that, that stupid brace on. (laughs) And like, if you want to try running a 10 K, but like having your chest constricted to like, I, I could hardly breathe just because there was no give in that, that thing. So, I mean, honestly, the hardest part was just like trying to breathe, (laughs) But, um, I remember I did it in 48 minutes, which is nothing to write home about, but <clears throat> you know, six weeks after breaking my back, I think it was like an eight thirty pace. That's so, respectable, man. Very respectable. Yeah, I was happy with it, but yeah, it was, wow. it was totally an emotional moment. And like, I remember the shirt I was wearing. I remember the shorts I was wearing. I just, I remember so much about that day. It was a pretty happy day for me. <laughs> Have you always had that mindset of, I don't even know what you would want to 
call that that particular mindset of like saying no to the doctors, no to your your friends and your family, all telling you no, you don't need to run, you shouldn't run, but you're just gonna do it anyways. Have you always had that mindset, or did that spark from that event? It sparked from that. So when I was in high school, I I, I didn't mention this, but I did do track and football. Um, I did football because like I wanted to be cool, <laughs> like you know, growing up overweight, I didn't have a lot of friends. And so like, you know, I lost the weight and like, I wanted to make friends and logically in my naive high school mind, the best way to do that was to join the football team. And then a requirement for football was track. But like, I remember like, you know, I avoided all the big kids at practice at football. I faked so many injuries to get out of football practice. Like I just wanted the status symbol of being on the football team. I didn't care to actually push myself. So somewhere between like my high school, 18 year old self to, you know, when I turned 21 or 22, whenever it was, I broke my back, something switched in, in my head. I don't know why, but something did. Man. So after, after that first 10 K, what, what'd you do after that? Did you just kind of continually progress through races from there? Yes. I mean, honestly, when people ask what got me into ultra running, I say it's from breaking my back because you know, at that point I, I finally ditched the brace. My friends called it my, uh, Ninja turtle shell. <laughs> um, so I ditched the shell. All my friends were in college. All my friends had jobs. I had no job. I had no classes. And so like literally, so I moved back to like my dorm from my parents' house, um, shortly after that 10 K. And just because like all my friends were busy from like 8 AM to 7 PM or whatever, like I would sleep in till noon or something every day then I'd wake up and I'd go run 10 to 20 miles every day. And then after that, I'd go to the gym and lift weights for two hours. Like that's, that's probably like the most in shape I've ever been in was during that time. But yeah, like just because strictly, just simply because I had nothing else to do, I just started running a lot through that. I ended up getting a new job where I met a ultra runner and he was the first ultra runner I've ever met. Like I didn't even know what ultra running was at the time. And so when he found out, I was like running 10 to 20 miles a day just for fun. He he told me about ultra running. He told me about a local race um, that he encouraged me to sign up for, which I did. So I basically just did a one 10K, one half marathon, and then I jumped right into ultras. Like I still technically haven't even done a marathon. <laughs> <laughs> just skipped right by it. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> so it sounds like you were just, I guess for lack of a better term, or just kind of lost for a little bit. Like you didn't, did you feel like you didn't have a purpose or, or you're just kind of searching for, for meaning or purpose? Cause I feel like, you know, when something very significant and traumatic happens like that for a lot of people and all your friends are doing this other thing and you know, you're, you're just kind of hanging out. You just, you're just sort of lost, I guess. Is that a good description? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so like every night, like I'd go to bed at like 2 PM, like, and I, I just remember it's, kind of pathetic. (laughs) Oh, I don't want to say it's pathetic in case people are going through something similar, but I would just lay in my bed for like three to four hours at night till three or four in the morning and just like listen to sad music. (laughs) Like (laughs) even though I healed remarkably fast, even though I wasn't paralyzed, like just the fact that I was like not in college, not a part of like the festivities or whatever term you want to use. I, I was a little bit lost, you could say. So yeah. Um, I'd say the running was definitely the highlight for that time period. It was like literally the only thing I was looking forward to each day. Man. Well, I mean, it sounds like running was, was sort of that savior in that moment or just fitness and, you know, pursuing, I guess, a better version of yourself in, in that physical regard. Yeah, absolutely. 
Man, so what was the uh, who was the guy that you met the the ultra runner? His name's Cody Draper. Um, he's actually now the race director of a local hundred that's pretty prestigious. It's the Bear One Hundred. I've heard of that um, one. Okay. Yeah, so it's just here in my backyard. It's a hard walk, hard rock qualifier. It's a Western States qualifier. But yeah, he's he's still a trail runner. He's a race director. He's pretty well known in the area for his running. What was the uh, what was the first ultra that you signed up for? So I mean, for all the hardcore ultra runners that are listening, they might not think that it's an ultra, but um, it's the Logan Peak race, and it's just a twenty eight miler. So it's barely over a marathon, but. <clears throat> You go up to one of our higher peaks here in Cache Valley, Utah. Um, you gain like 7,000 feet in those 28 miles. So it's definitely a lot of climbing. Um, my longest run before that race was like 20 miles. And I just remember like absolutely suffering on that 20 mile run and being pretty nervous for it. <laughs> uh, that, how'd that first, that first ultra go as a whole? Was it like, was that just a whole new stepping stone into like, wow, I can, I might get addicted to this thing. <laughs> Yeah. So, I mean, the good news for me is this was back when it wasn't as hot as it is today. Um, so I did this race and I ended up taking fourth place. Um, I beat my goal by over an hour, so it did go pretty well. Um, but just the fact that like, there's not like the time that I did it in at that time would not get me fourth place today, (laughs) but just because not many people were into it back then, it gave me the confidence that I needed to be like, like, maybe I could get good at this. So, um, yeah, I definitely decided to stick with it after having such a good first experience. What year did that happen? 2013. So <clears throat> ironically, this was about two to three months, a year and two to three months post-surgery. So that was roughly right when I was supposed to start running again, according to what my doctor told me. And you're just running and you're just running up a mountain and you yeah. run 28 miles. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's incredible, man. Um, that's just such a, an insane journey to go from literally not going to be able to run for a year to crushing an ultra marathon w- within basically a year. Yeah. Um, I was happy. <laughs> so, so I, I'm, I am curious cause I know nutrition is a very large part of, of your, of you, I guess. And, uh, I'm very curious as to what your nutrition looked like. If you remember it from some of those early races or that first ultra marathon. Oh yeah. I remember it. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so do you know who Carl Meltzer is? Yeah. Yeah. The speed goat. Yep. So he, um, for people who are listening that don't know who he is, he's like, um, he set a speed record on the Appalachian trail a few years ago. He is, I don't know if this is a real word, but he's dubbed himself like the winningest hundred mile ultra marathoner in the world or whatever, meaning he's just won a lot of hundred mile races. And so he's from Utah, probably about an hour and a half from my house. And I remember reading an interview, um, that trail trail and ultra runner magazine did with him. And they asked him about his nutrition and his answer was essentially like, I eat whatever the hell I want. <laughs> like if I want a beer, I'll drink it. If I want a pizza, I'll eat it. <clears throat> and so when I read ultra runner, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and so when I read that, I was just like, yeah, that's, I, I like that idea. <laughs> and so I, I adopted the mentality. It was just like, I'm running this much. I'm working out this much. I just need calories. So like a lot of pizza, a lot of ice cream, um, Panda Express was my favorite place in the world oh, back man. in the day. So like, no joke, I went there four times a week. <laughs> so oh just gosh. typical standard American diet it was what I was doing when I started running. It's sad that that is considered the standard American diet. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, 
did it did it just get to a point where you're like yeah this is not gonna work out for what i want to do um kind of uh i had somebody that helped me realize that so basically i i used to work in the marketing department for ultra footwear and my specific role as the sports marketing director meaning that i was like over events and athletes uh do you know who jeff browning is yeah yeah So one of our first, so every year we had a retreat with our athletes where we'd fly them somewhere cool and then spend four or five days just running and teaching them about the product. And my first retreat with these guys um, happened to be Zion, Utah. We flew in the team. I I had like a huge van. I picked up six or seven athletes, drove them to Zion. But Jeff Browning, he was in that van. This was my first time meeting him and he was in the front seat with me. And I remember I had a, um, it was the white can monster. (laughs) Um, it was my favorite back in the day. I was drinking that and I was talking to Jeff. I had no idea. Like I knew who he was obviously because he was an athlete for the team that I was over, (laughs) but like, I didn't know much about his diet. Um, and he's definitely one of the pioneers of a low carb approach for endurance athletes. And so I can't remember the comment I made, but I made a comment about how, like, I have just a lot of stomach issues at my races. And Jeff's response is basically like, well, it's cause you eat drink garbage like that. <laughs> and I was just like, what do you mean? This isn't this what all the ultra runners <laughs> eat and drink. <laughs> um, so he basically told me about a low carb approach. And at the time with my races, I either was having stomach issues or energy issues because I was eating as much as I needed for the energy that I needed to get to the finish. But it was just like so much for my stomach that it was hard to digest. So I'd either puke or just like dry heave and then my next race, I would try and like not eating as much so I wouldn't puke, but then I'd end up losing all my energy because I wasn't eating enough. So it was just this dumb cycle that I was stuck in. <clears throat> and the way Jeff explained the low carb approach to me um, basically made me realize that, you know, assuming what he was saying was true, that it could potentially fix those two issues for me because I would be eating less, meaning I would have less GI issues. And then, um, because I'd be training my body to be more efficient at burning fat for fuel, I'd have less energy issues. And so I actually like, you know, I drove him to the airport at the end of that retreat. I drove home, told my wife, I was like, Hey, you know, I know that carbs is it's a staple of our diet. <laughs> um, we were newly wed. So, you know, pasta and all that stuff is like the cheapest, most affordable thing for us. But I was just like, I really want to get good at this. And I think this can help me. So I'm going to start eating more meat and just basically eat meat and vegetables and see what happens. And that was six years ago to um, next week. I, I started the day that my son was born <laughs> and oh, next, wow. next week is his six year old birthday. So it's easy to remember how long I've been doing it, but you know, I've seen a lot of huge benefits from it ever since. And I saw you were posting about it a couple of weeks ago. You actually wanted to correct me if I'm wrong, but you wanted to like revert back to that original diet that you had just to see how your body would react. Is that, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, me and my friend have a podcast where we talk about nutrition, basically like we call it the primal show or the primal podcast or something, but we had some continuous blood glucose monitors sent to us just to like, see what our food does to our blood glucose, our blood sugar levels. And so we decided just for fun to try the standard American diet for a week to see what happens. And, neither one of us lasted more than a day. Like (laughs) it didn't take long for us to see how bad we felt. (laughs) What kind of things were you guys eating? I mean, I just went back to what I was doing before this. So I had Panda Express for dinner one night. (laughs) Um, I had a bowl of cereal before going to bed. 
Um, the day of my long run, I would always start my long runs with a donut back, like before I switched. <laughs> so I had a donut before my long run. Like I had a lot of people who I call them hate followers, <laughs> people that I think follow me that like, don't like me, but they just want to see in their mind, what kind of garbage I'm putting out there about nutrition. <laughs> and so I had a lot of people tell me like, well, of course you felt like crap. Like you went to the extreme and I'm just like, Hey, buddy, this is how I used to eat. Like I didn't do anything differently. So yes, it is extreme, but like, that's seriously how I used to eat. <laughs> Dude, I think that's uh that's such a good way to be able to visualize and, and a tangible way to experience and feel what that food actually does to your body. Cause I mean, it reminds me of, uh, I think it's kind of a similar thing with alcoholics, unfortunately, where like that becomes your new baseline or your new norm. Like if you're just constantly drinking or constantly eating these crap foods, you just think, oh, this is just how I feel every single day. But when you get rid of all of that and you adopt a very healthy whole foods based diet, and then you slowly, imp or you know, out of nowhere, you just implement just garbage <laughs> food like that, you realize, wow, this stuff is just horrible for you. Yeah. <clears throat> and I don't want to be one sided. Um, the big reason we did that was to see what would happen to our glucose levels. <laughs> and to be honest with you, after I ate that Panda Express meal, which was like, you know, I had three different meats and they were all breaded, um, noodles. And then I had like these cream cheese, cheese rangoons or something. It's like basically deep fried cream cheese. <laughs> um, even after eating all of those carbs, the breading, the sugars from the sauces, like my glucose before I ate it was like low nineties. And it, the highest it got was one twenty five, which wow. is still very like the range you want to be in is 70 to one fifty. So I didn't even spike out of the normal range. And so, I mean, honestly, for people that want to eat healthy, <clears throat> that just taught me that like, if you want to have like one off meal a week, like metabolically, you're probably fine, but like, you just got to potentially deal with all the other issues. Like, like I, not to get too graphic, but I had diarrhea for a few days. <laughs> um, oh, man. my joints were just so achy on that long run. I've never had achy joints since doing this until that day. Um, headache, brain fog, just irritability, just like so many other issues that I don't personally care to ever deal with. But if you're willing to deal with that stuff, like metabolically, you're probably fine to like have one or two cheat meals a week is kind of what I got out of it. <laughs> Dang, that, that's, that's an important lesson to learn. I think it's, it's like anything else. Like if, you know, some people get so worried about if they miss one workout or if they, you know, have one cheat meal a week or whatever that their whole training, their whole physique, everything's just going to go out the window, but it's more about, you know, the long game and, and just being consistent with something and occasionally having those off days. But dude, that's incredible that just from those few meals you had within, <laughs> you know, a 24 hour window, everything just, you just felt like crap, which I'm not surprised, but it's, yeah, uh, it's just so powerful to be able to see that firsthand. Yeah. I mean, my buddy that did it, he didn't even get out of his bed the next day. <laughs> like <laughs> I got back from my long run. I was just like, dude, that was the worst run I've had in years. <clears throat> and his response to me was just like, at least you ran. <laughs> <laughs> do you got, do you take, uh, any kind of supplements or are you, are you strictly, well, let me actually, let me just re-ask this question. What does a day in the life eating look like for you just on any typical day? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, it fluctuates based off of my volume and like, you know, if I'm doing a speed workout versus just like a super easy run. Um, but basically the gist is the more I'm working out, the more volume I'm putting in, the more carbohydrates I'm going to have. <clears throat> Most of those carbohydrates are in the form of fruits, um, with some vegetables, raw honey and raw dairy. 
Um, very little processed foods. I do allow myself to have some processed foods once a week, just so my gut's used to that for like race day. Um, I personally choose like healthier processed foods. So, you know, like a bag of, I don't know if you've heard of the the brand Siete. Mm, Yeah. 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 So like I'll do Siete chips because they're grain free. They're cooked in avocado oil instead of seed oils. So I do allow that once a week, but I'd say like 90 to 95% of the time, You know, I'll wake up around six, I'll get my run in. Sometimes I'll have a strength training session. I'll do that three days a week. And then I usually do all that fasted. Um, not because I'm just like trying to do it fasted. It's just how it works out. And so, but typically I'll get back from all that and it's usually between 10 or 11. And that's usually when I have my first meal and that meal is usually five to six scrambled eggs, um, with a little bit of raw cheese in it, some guacamole, um, Occasionally, I'll do some beef liver um, just because it's packed with nutrients. Um, and then I'll usually top that off with a big bowl of like berries, banana, heavy cream, and some raw honey. <clears throat> and then usually around two or three, I'll have like a, a big glass of raw milk just to get a bunch of protein and fat. And then I'll have another bowl of fruit. And then usually for dinner, it's a pound to a pound and a half of some red meat, um, usually with either some like egg salad that I'll make on my own or some shrimp and then another big bowl of fruit. And so it's basically the way I describe it to people of it's like, it's like carnivore with fruit. Um, because all my meals are like hundred percent carnivore aside from that big bowl of fruit that I have afterwards. Is the, is the purpose of the fruit just for performance purposes? Yeah. Do you, have you experimented without the fruit and like gone strictly carnivore? Yeah. It doesn't work for me. <laughs> no, no. I mean like, cause I, sorry, I guess, I guess I used to do that. I used to do carnivore and like very strict keto. I used to do very little fruit, mostly vegetables. Um, and then do you know who Paul Saladino is? Yeah. Yeah, of course. So yeah, I heard about him and I saw his whole thing about how he's like carnivore MD 2.0 and he like eats all meat and then fruit. And, you know, he talked a lot about like how vegetables can have gut issues for some people. And I did notice that like on the days that I have a lot of vegetables, like for example, I'll go out to my parents every Sunday with my family and we have family dinner. Um, And just because I don't really do potatoes, my mom would like make me a ton of like zucchini or something like that. And I would notice that like on those days, I would be a lot more inflamed and just have like kind of like irritable bowel syndrome almost, but I never correlated it to anything. But once Paul Saladino started talking about all that, or at least once I found out who Paul Saladino was, I just started wondering if like those random gut issues I had was from my vegetables. So I cut out all vegetables, switched to fruit, noticed an immediate difference with my gut health. Um, And why did I bring this up? Oh, (laughs) um, I I had a metabolic test, not a metabolic test, but like a a VO2 max test done about two Mm -hmm. years ago. And you know how like they like track... Have you ever had one done? I have not. No, I've seen them done, but never personally. Okay. Well, part of the things, one of the things they measure is like your crossover point from where you go from burning like mostly fats to primarily glucose. Um, and when I did my test, I never had a crossover point. I basically had to tap out before I had that crossover point. And so for me, that kind of taught me that I was, I essentially reversed what my body was capable of doing. So like I went from like not being able to burn fat for fuel, which is why I like bonked at all my races to like just being really good at burning fat for fuel, but then almost kind of like 
glucose intolerant um, is kind of the way that I thought of it. And in my head that, that like was essentially taking an edge out of my performance. Like I wanted to be able to burn both fuel sources. And so that was also a turning point for me where I did start to implement a little bit more fruit. And I have noticed a big difference since I've been more fruit focused versus vegetable focused. Yeah. So it probably had a more of an effect on like your top end speed and your, your like explosiveness, I would imagine. Yeah. Yeah. And just like uphill running too, like, you know, for the people that I coach that are in flat areas and they're getting ready for like vert, like hilly races. Um, I do focus on giving them a little bit more speed workout. Um, obviously like Stairmaster and other stuff to help them get vert. But, you know, I do believe that like there is a correlation between explosiveness from speed to the explosiveness of being able to like get up to a mountain pretty quickly. And so, yeah, I do, I did feel like I wasn't able to go uphill as fast as like a lot of other trail runners were before making that switch. I think the, you know, one of the biggest lessons to be learned out of that is that our bodies are just so adaptable to whatever, whatever we give them, whatever stimulus we provide to it. It's like, it can adapt to anything that we put it through, which is, which is cool. And so I I think the best part about that is you can choose what to give your body, what fuel to give it, what kind of training stimulus and it's just going to, you know, become more efficient and evolve with you over time, which is awesome. Yeah. Um, do you, do you take any kind of supplements or anything? I didn't hear any supplements in there. I'm just oh. curious if you do like protein powder or greens powder, anything like that. Um, I occasionally do protein powder. Um, not often. I used to do it every day, but ever since like the Paul Saladino thing, I have been doing like a lot more eggs than liver. And so I haven't needed the protein powder as much. Um, I do take creatine every day. Um, I do take collagen every day just because, you know, once you hit 30, our body stops producing as much. Um, but I do try to get as much of that from bone broth as I can. So like after this podcast, I guess I forgot to mention that when I go up to have like a bowl of fruit after this, I'll probably have a bowl of bone broth too. So I do try to get most of that from that, but sometimes I'll supplement collagen, but just the typical stuff, like I'll throw in vitamin D I'm up in Utah, so I don't see the sun that much. Um, omegas, probiotics, just some of the typical stuff. But, um, yeah, I'd say collagen and creatine are the two, uh, constants. Cool. So it's really mostly just like an insurance or just kind of filling in the gaps where, where you might be not getting quite as much from a whole foods diet. Yeah. Yeah. I've done less supplementation ever since implementing liver into my diet. That makes sense. Yeah. I mean, liver is kind of known to be like nature's nature's multivitamin, right? Yeah. They say that about eggs too. Um, so where I'm having eggs every day and liver every other day, I feel pretty topped off with my vitamins and minerals. <laughs> what, uh, what kind of eggs do you eat? I'm a huge fan of eggs. Um, but I'm curious as to what eggs you eat. Like, you mean like how I cook them or like if I buy pasture raised? Yeah. Do you buy them from a store? Do you guys have chickens? Or if you do buy oh. them from a store, do you look for, you know, like pasture raised, organic, cage free, that kind of stuff? Yeah. I mean, at a minimum cage free, I try to get pasture raised, but like with egg prices right now, it's like <laughs> Yeah. So right now we're doing like the cage free. You can get like a 24 pack of cage free eggs at Costco for like six bucks. Um, but yeah, at a minimum I try to get cage free. Cool. Do you track calories or do you, do you use any kind of macro tracker or any of that? Or is it, is it mostly now? I mean, it sounds like you eat pretty much the same thing day in, day out. So, you know, you've kind of established that, that routine and just go off of that. Or do you, do you ever get really detailed with tracking? No, I don't track. I just eat till I'm satiated and yeah, I do eat the same thing every day. So I have a good idea of what I'm getting. It seems like, I mean, within, 
the endurance space in general, that's kind of the way to go about everything. Diet training included is like, just do what feels good. And you have to put in a certain amount of hours and reps to establish what kind of stimulus your body needs. But is that as a whole, the, the approach that you take is just kind of do what, what feels good and, and go based more off a of feel rather than t- sticking to strict data. Yep. Yeah. I don't think it's good to get stuck in the strict light number crunching data type stuff. Um, I do think it's good to keep your body guessing. Um, so I do like to throw in some random stuff occasionally to like throw myself out of my routine or whatever, <laughs> but uh, yeah, for the most part, like it's, it's easier that way and it's easier to get into a routine that way. So I, I like doing that. <laughs> Are you one of those crazy people that I go out and run without a watch and j- just no. run just for the fun of it? <laughs> no, I need my watch. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, I've, I've tried doing that before because I have a few friends that are like, I'll just go out and run for, I don't know how long because I didn't track it. And I'm like, I don't know. I love seeing the Strava data. I can't, I can't give it up. <laughs> yeah, I need that data too. <laughs> um, when you're doing races or during training, do you incorporate any kind of gels or endurance powders like a tailwind or electrolytes, anything like that? Yeah. So, um, I use Martin's Martin gels and spring energy gels. Um, I tend to do spring just because I like the ingredients, but you know, occasionally, especially like day two of a 200 or something like that, you get what I call palate fatigue. Mm. And so that's where I revert to Martin's because they essentially have no flavor. And then they're also, they have like a jello like consistency. So like they go down the throat super easy and just because they have no taste, like it's usually better for my stomach. So I, I switch between those two. Um, I use mountain ops. Um, I also use Redmond relight, uh, for my electrolytes and as well as ultra salt. Um, and then I do like a lot of, uh, do you like, do you have a, like a natural grocers where you're at? I'm sure you have yep. a whole foods. Okay. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll go to old natural grocers and like a lot of my races are fueled by just products out of there. Um, like I get this grain free granola. Um, I get a lot of fruit based stuff. I get those Siete chips. Um, but yeah, I do use gels. Typically I'll do gels on the first day. Um, to get my stomach used to everything. And then once my stomach's kind of settled in, that's when I'll start going to like more food type stuff. Oh, interesting. I feel like I've almost heard, I mean, I'm not super keen on the the ultra space yet, but I feel like I've almost heard the opposite where some people will start with solid food first and then go to gels. Do you have like a, a reasoning behind starting with gels and then food? I mean, your stomach's trying to do so much, (laughs) like, especially if it's a hot race, like, you know, your, your, your body's trying to cool itself down, like your stomach sloshing around from all the running and stuff like that. And so for me, I just found it's easier to do simple sugars like gels right at the start versus trying to eat something heavier, more dense, just to give my stomach the opportunity to like get used to running, get used to digesting those simple foods. And then usually for me, like 12 hours or so into a race is when my, I feel like my stomach's just like kind of adapted and that's when I'll start having it. Um, I'd be curious to know if those people who do that have stomach issues or not, because I know I would have stomach issues if I did it that way. Yeah, I would. I'd be curious as well. And I've only done a couple, a couple ultras. Um, and I felt like I tried to start with solid food first and it was kind of that same thing where my stomach just wasn't having it. So, um, that was kind of more of a selfish question cause I've got some ultras <laughs> coming up. So I wanted to know, yeah. <laughs> um, so you did that, the 28 mile ultra marathon that was about six years ago, I believe you said. So then no, where, that was 2013. 
So that oh, was about 20, 10 years ago. 10 years ago. Okay. So your first, first ultra <clears throat> 10 years ago. And I know you've done a heck of a lot more since then. So kind of take <laughs> us on that journey from that first one throughout, you know, just where you went from there. Yeah. So after that, I did a 50 K about two or three months later. Um, <clears throat> then like a 50 miler and a hundred K within that next year too. Like I jumped in pretty quick. Uh, my first hundred mile race was about a year and three months after my first ultra and my first ultra was, or sorry, my first hundred was the bear 100. So I did that in September of 2014. Um, four months after that, I did the Zion 100. So I did two 100 mile races pretty close to each other. And then about five or six months after that, I did the Wasatch 100. <clears throat> so that was pretty with, gnarly. Yeah, that, that one sucks. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, within like the first, or I guess from when I did my first hundred, um, a year after that, I did two more 100 mile races. So I got into the longer distance pretty quickly. Um, Wasatch 100 would have been fall of 2015. And what then, made you, uh, what made you skip the whole road running scene and, you know, skip marathons, half marathons. I know you said you did one half in there, but what made you dive <clears throat> even deeper and further into the, the ultra scene? Uh, probably Cody Draper, the guy that got me into ultra running. Um, <clears throat> I remember when he and I were first talking and when we first met, I like told him how I would run up Logan Canyon road. Um, that was like my favorite place to go just because it was quiet. You could see the mountains and stuff. And he was just like, you know, that like 50 feet to the right, there's a trail that you can run. Right. <laughs> and so his mentality is just like, if you can run on trails, why would you run on roads? <laughs> and so I just like kind of adopted that mentality because he's the one that introduced me to it all. And, that's kind of what I've stuck with ever since. <laughs> Have you done um, any kind of road racing since that like half marathon or that first 10K? So I've done, I did Badwater last year, which is all oh, road. Wow. Um, I did, I've done a track race. We run on a high school track for 24 hours. Um, I've done across the years, which is a 24 hour race on this like one mile looped course, which is mostly concrete or, or yeah, it's like a sidewalk. Um, but aside from those three things, it's all been like a hundred percent trail, man. And I definitely uh, love, or I guess I definitely hate those three road races way more than <laughs> the trail races that I do. <laughs> yeah. There's something more, I don't know if, if primal is the word for it, but it just feels like you're more connected with the earth and yourself and the people around you, at least in my experience from trail running, um, and just being in nature. There's a lot to be said about that as well. Yeah, I would agree with you. Like, and two, like, so I live where I live. I can't run in the mountains in the winter. Um, mm -hmm. So I do a way more road running in the winter. And I don't know if you can relate to this since you do both, but like when I'm on the road, like I have the hardest time running slow. Um, for me, I'm just like, I'm on the road. It's flat. I should be going fast. I don't want to look like a a wimp in front of all the cars that are passing me. And so like, I feel like that mentality carries over to road races for me. Um, it's way easier for me to pace myself at a trail race versus a road race, um, which maybe I should embrace and try to figure out how to pace myself at a road race, but I don't care. <laughs> I, to think, do that yet. <laughs> I think they're definitely two different sports, um, or at least very different genres within the sport of running, because you said it right there of road running is way more about the times and your, your overall, effort and you know going fast and i think that there's a lot more comparison and competition within road running as opposed to trail running it's more just about like having fun 
doing it for the experience, finishing the race. And, and really, in my experience, nobody really cares how long it takes you to finish it. Yeah, exactly. It's just about kind of pushing yourself and seeing what you can do. So you did the, uh, the first couple hundred milers, um, and you mentioned off a few just incredible <laughs> events in there that you did. Uh, I know there's a lot that you've done, um, and you have to list off every single one, but what are some of the more like notable ones, uh, or maybe the most memorable ones that, that you've done in the last decade or so? Yeah. So I learned about the 200 mile distance in 2016. I thought hundred mile was like kind of the cap. I didn't realize that there was way more above that. Um, and so I learned about the 200 mile race scene. And so I ended up signing up for the Bigfoot 200 in 2017, uh, did the Bigfoot 200. I didn't, I ended up getting like sixth place, but again, I feel like my time today would not have gotten me sixth place. Just because the sport has grown so much. Yeah. And so yeah, I got sixth place. I had a lot of stomach issues at that race just because I messed up my electrolytes. And so like, I kind of swore off 200 mile races after that. <laughs> but, uh, at the time my coach moved up to where I lived just because I bragged about where I lived so much, but he's since left because he can't handle the winters. <laughs> um, <laughs> but anyway, so after that race, we met up for breakfast and I told him everything that went wrong. And he was just like, Oh yeah, it sounds like you weren't right with your electrolytes. Mm-hmm. And so driving home from that breakfast, I was just like, I was like, well, shoot, I wonder how I can do if I like dial in my electrolytes. And so I got home that day and told my wife I was going to sign up for the Tahoe 200, which was, you know, three weeks later after that experience. (laughs) And And then this was after the, uh, what was the first two or the 200 that you messed up? Bigfoot 200. Bigfoot. Okay. Yeah. So Bigfoot 200, a week later, I signed up for the Tahoe 200, which at the time would be happening three weeks after I signed up for it. Um, and since I signed up for the Tahoe 200, you know, there's this thing called the triple crown of 200s, which is doing Bigfoot Tahoe and Moab 240. Um, Moab 240 is in October, Tahoe 200s in September, Bigfoot 200s in August. So three 200 mile races in the span of like 60 days. And so in my mind, I was just like, well, if if I'm going to sign up for Tahoe and do two of the three, I might as well sign up for Moab too. So that day I signed up for Moab too and put myself into the triple crown. (laughs) Um, (laughs) what year was this? 2017. 2017. Was there, those 200-mile races hadn't been around for that long, had they? No, that year was actually the inaugural year of the Moab 240. Um, Wow. I guess a a detail I glossed over, I was planning on doing the double crown when I signed up for Bigfoot, but then she she, uh, announced the Moab 240 just like right as I was getting ready to sign up for it. And so in my head, I was just like, oh, I could do two, but I can't do three. So that's why I only ended up signing up for Bigfoot. But then I ended up signing up for all three anyway that year. Were you the first one to do all three of them? I mean, technically, I guess, because I ended up... So there's this thing where, like, for everybody that does the Triple Crown, um, Candace Burt, the race director, she's, like, created essentially a race called the Triple Crown of 200s, and it's just your three 200-mile race times combined together. And so technically I, I ended up winning the triple crown that year. And so I guess theoretically, since I finished Moab first, I guess technically I was the first to finish all three that year. <laughs> um, but yeah, <laughs> dude, that's incredible, man. Those, I keep hearing people say that 200 is the new 100 and I'm like, <laughs> uh, slow it down. Like I, I thought 100s were just becoming like a thing and now it's 200s. It's, it's incredible, man. Um, do you know Pierce Shao at all? Yeah. I just started coaching him. 
how nice. I just had him on the podcast a couple of weeks ago because um, he's going for the triple crown, as I'm sure you know that. Yep. But just hearing, you know, some of the the training that goes into races like that, it's it's really it's just nuts to me. Um, what what does your training look like for an event like a 200 mile race? So, I mean, honestly, like my mileage doesn't increase that much from like training for a 100 to training to a 200. Um, I'd say the, uh, a couple of the biggest differences, I do a lot more back to back, like medium ish runs followed up by a long run. So for me on like a Saturday, I'll go run or sorry, on a Friday, I'll go run about 15 miles up in the mountains, which is like, you know, two to three hours. And then the next day I'll do like another 20 to 30 miles, um, which could be about six hours in the mountains. So I do like more of those back to back type stuff. Uh, but my total mileage probably stays the same. Um, and I also try to, so, so basically like weekly mileage, I try to get around 80 to 90 a week, um, when I'm getting ready for a 200, but then I also try to get about 20,000 feet of climbing, um, which, you know, 80 to 90 miles in the mountains is way more time on your feet than 80 to 90 miles on the road. So the volume is definitely there in terms of time. <clears throat> But the other thing I do too is just like, I'd say the biggest thing you need to get ready for, for a 200 versus a 100 is like the mental, like beating <laughs> that you're going to get in a 200. And so occasionally I haven't done this for a while since like, you know, I think I've done eight to 10 200s at this point. Um, so I personally don't do this as much anymore, but like somebody like Pierce or somebody that's going to be new to the 200 mile scene. I will sprinkle in these like sleep deprivation training runs is what I call it. And so like in that scenario that I just gave you where I'll do 15 on Friday and 30 on Saturday, um, I will do like two times where I'll schedule like, you know, Pierce will use him in his example again, but <clears throat> I'll tell Pierce to go run 15 miles at like 10 PM at night on Friday. So he's going to finish between midnight and one, and then he's going to get back shower, get in bed, and then he's going to sleep for about four hours and then get up at five or five 30 before the sun comes up and then go do his 30 mile run. And so that's just, I mean, honestly, the hardest part of a 200, one of the hardest parts, there's a lot of hard parts, <laughs> but one of the hardest parts of a 200 is when you go down into that sleep tent or, you know, pop-up camper, whatever you have taking like an hour nap, hour and a half nap, and then waking up only to like realize you have to get back out in the cold dark night and go on for another hundred miles or whatever it is. And so Jeez. it's just like a lot more mental preparation, um, is really the biggest difference from what I've seen. It kind of reminds me of the, uh, the Goggins four by four by 48, or, you know, a sort of a variation of that. I've done that, um, a couple of times now, and I, that seems like a good introduction into kind of that, you know, where you, you run for a little bit, you got to chill out and rest and you got to run again. And it's like, I'd rather just go run 50 miles and not have to deal <laughs> with this run for, you know, over the course of two days. I'm, I'm sure 200 mile races are that, but just on a much grander scale, right? Yeah. A hundred percent. Like it's, yeah, it's rough. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think the hardest part? Um, you, you said there's a lot of hard parts. Is there one specific thing that stands out that, that is so difficult about those races or is it just a series of, or a, a combination of all these different little things? I mean, so for me, like the hardest part is like kind of the loneliness, <laughs> um, so for like the people who are in the front, like I would say like the people who are in the top five of these 200 mile races, maybe even the top 10, like they spend a lot of time alone. 
uh, more middle of the pack people, like they can get like a good group of people. Um, like I know, you know, Ryan, right? Uh, Callan. Yeah. Yeah. Or, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Ryan, like, um, I finished the Moab 240. What year was this? It would have been 2021. That was the year that Ryan did it too. <clears throat> and I finished, it was probably like 3 PM on a Sunday. Um, I went to my hotel, showered up. I went to a restaurant, ate some dinner. And then like I hopped in the truck with my, um, my friend Ben light and we drove out on the course. Uh, I, I think I had about five or six people I was coaching doing the lab. And so I drove to like all the aid stations to try to see them. But like Ryan, he like came in to one of the aid stations with a group of like five or six people. And so like more middle of the pack, like you definitely have more people to be around. So I don't know if this is necessarily a hard thing for, for people in the middle of the pack, but I know for me being up in the front, it's really hard. Like, cause you don't see anybody unless you have a pacer, like you're out there completely alone. And so like, I always tell people if you are ungrateful for your life, go run a 200 mile race <laughs> because like there's so many times I'll just be like sitting at mile 150. It's pitch dark at night. I'm cold. I'm tired. My body hurts. And I'm just like, I would give anything to just like hear my kids fighting with each other right now. Like obviously in the moment when they're fighting, I don't like it and it irritates me. But like when I'm deep in the pain cave like that, I would give anything to be in that moment and just be with my family. So for me, like the loneliness is kind of a really hard thing to deal with. <laughs> and I feel like that's something I don't hear a lot of ultra runners talk about is, is that loneliness aspect. Um, Maybe I'm soft. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> no, no. I think it's a, it's a humility. I would say to, to be able to talk about that. Um, cause everybody talks about the nutrition or the crewing and all everything else involved, but that's a, that's what I just don't hear talked about a lot, which is interesting. Um, when, when you get to those moments where you're like, man, I really don't want to keep going forward. Do you have an answer that you tell yourself when, when you start asking yourself those why questions? Yeah. I mean, the two things that I think of, <clears throat> I am, uh, you can't see it, but I remember it one of, I want to say it was the Tahoe 200. So it was my second 200 in 2017. I had terrible IT band issues from like mile 60 to 160. So almost a hundred miles. I was just like walking in pain at that race. And when I was getting ready to quit, my wife took out like a, a Sharpie and just wrote on my arm, just one step forward. And so I ended up tattooing that on my arm, right where she wrote it. <clears throat> and so like, I, I looked down at that tattoo a lot just to remind myself, like just one step forward. And, you know, I know that a lot of people have similar mantras. Like I paced Cam Haynes at a race once and he just kept saying to himself over and over, just one step closer. And so, you know, a lot of people have those kind of mantras, but just one step forward and then uh, my first DNF was the Zion 100K. And again, that was from IT band issues. <clears throat> but I remember where I dropped at Zion, it was mile 44. And the aid station I was at, the the people put me in a truck, the aid station volunteers, and they drove me to uh, the start line. And where they were driving me was actually the the actual race course. And so I could see runners running down the road as I was driving by them. And I remember just like looking at them all and then just thinking like, like, what are you doing? Like you have 18 miles left. You can walk this if you really need to. And so I asked the volunteer if he could drive me back so I could finish. And he was just like, sorry, you're in a truck. Like you're officially done. 
And oh. so I remember that like every time I want to drop, like I beat myself up for like two weeks after that, which probably is not healthy, <laughs> but I was pretty torn that I quit when I realized that I didn't need to quit when it was too late. And so I just always remind myself like, yes, it sucks right now. Yes, I'm alone. Yes, I'm in pain. But the pain like that I'm feeling right now is going to be way less compared to like if I drop and beat myself up for the next week or whatever it ends up being. Dude, that's a very powerful realization. Um, <laughs> when, when you can tell yourself in that moment that, okay, it's going to hurt now for the next X amount of hours, or it's going to hurt for months and months if I, if I call it quits and, and throw in the towel right now. So it's, it's a hard thing to have to tell yourself in that moment, but I think if you can, you know, tell yourself that and understand it and accept it. I mean, there's not a lot of things you can quit when, when you have that mindset. Yeah. And I mean, I don't know if it's necessarily healthy to beat yourself up for a week or two after not finishing a race. Um, <clears throat> that's probably something internal that I need to work on, but, but yeah, there's definitely a period of time after you DNF a race where you do feel some regret. And at least for, in my experience, that regret hurts way more than just like the temporary pain of being on your feet for too long. I think there's a, a balanced amount of, of self-criticism and, and that like negative self-talk. And cause it's, if you just told yourself, Oh, it's fine. If I quit, who cares? It doesn't matter. Like then you're just going to quit everything, but you yeah. have to, you have to have a balance of, of, you know, I think it just makes you competitive too. It doesn't have to be competitive against somebody else, but competitive with yourself and knowing like, wow, I, I left something else out there and I, I just called it quits too early. Yeah. Um, so I think there's definitely a healthy balance there. Um, so to the, the average person who, who might say, like, I was talking to a friend telling, telling them that I was interviewing you and just saying some of the accomplishments that you've done. And they're like, why, why put your body through that? Why put your mind through that? Like, why spend your time doing these, these quote unquote crazy challenges? Um, so to somebody, I would say the average person is probably going to be asking those questions. What would you say to, to that kind of question? Yeah, probably two things. Um, I've been realizing this a lot more lately, but I've been having like some mental health that I've been working on. <clears throat> and I believe that like a lot of runners, um, especially ultra runners, like have something like whether it's an eating disorder they're trying to fight through or some kind of mental health issue that they're trying to run from. Like <clears throat> I do think that like doing something like this is a way for you to put yourself into control. Um, where like you might have anxiety, you might have depression and you might feel like you don't have control of your life, but by signing up for these things and doing these things, like you kind of are putting yourself in control. Um, that's something I'm kind of realizing right now, but <clears throat> before this realization, the biggest thing for me that I've been telling people is like going back to when I broke my back, like I, I didn't, I was told I wouldn't be running for a year. I was told that running probably wouldn't be the same. Uh, I was told that I was almost paralyzed. So like, I just had this moment where I was just like, I, before I even, so where I broke my back, it was at a ski resort and I had like a 50 minute ambulance ride to the hospital. And just like that whole ride, I was just like, am I paralyzed? Am I going to be paralyzed? Like, what's this going to look like? So like that hour or whatever it ended up being was like pretty stressful for me in terms of what my future is going to look like. <clears throat> and so for me, like, being able to like run these distances, put my body in this kind of pain. Like it goes back to that whole control thing that I was just talking about. But like for people that don't want to do these things, like I always just tell them like, 
wait until you're put into a situation where you can't do these things. And I'm pretty sure you're going to have a switch inside your head where you're going to wish that you, that you did these things. Um, I recently heard a podcast. Have you heard the David Goggins, Joe Rogan podcast that they just did in December? Of course. Yeah. 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 So David Goggins was in there talking. Um, I think the term that he used was like, he's front loaded his life like talking about his knee surgery that he just had and how running is not the same for him right now. It's like Joe basically asked him if he was depressed or whatever, that running is different for him now. And he was just like, he's like, no dude, I, I front loaded my life. Like I've done so many things that so many people are going to say that they've like never been able to do. Um, I'm obviously going to find new things to push myself. Like if I need to swim or bike, then cool. But you know, if those get taken away from me eventually, like I front loaded my life, I've done all these epic things I'm, I'm satisfied with that. And so I think that's pretty powerful. And, you know, that's something that I want to keep doing in case I ever get into a situation where I can't do this stuff anymore. Yeah. It's uh, it's just, you know, hopefully getting to the end of your life without regret and being able to truthfully tell yourself, like, did I do all the things that I wanted to do, all the things that I told myself I was going to do and, and, you know, being able to not have to ask yourself, what if, like, what if I would have done this? And what if I would have went out and ran that marathon or that ultra marathon? And so I think that that was a perfect answer to that question, man. Um, <laughs> what other, uh, what other, uh, events do you have coming up this year? I know you've got, uh, some big things planned for, for 2023 and beyond. Yeah. So, uh, I have the Cocodona 250 on May 1st. So coming up on about two weeks or three weeks from yesterday, I guess. Is that going to be the longest single race you've done? Like single distance uh, all in one shot? No. <laughs> um, <laughs> were you, were we communicating back when I tried the Arizona trail? Uh, I think I chatted with you a little bit afterwards. Okay. So I've done the Colorado trail, which is uh, just shy of oh, 500 right. miles. Um, and then last fall, I tried going after a fastest known time on the Arizona trail, which is 800 miles. I didn't oh finish it. I didn't, um, but I did get, it was about 615 miles is how far I got. And so oh that, God. that's the furthest I've ever done. <laughs> well, what does the, the Arizona trail look like? Is it mostly single track, like through the mountains? It, it, it runs North and South to yeah. Arizona, right? Yeah. So I started at the border of Utah and Arizona. <clears throat> you run about 80 miles on single track fire road, and then you do the grand Canyon. You go from the North rim to the South rim. And then once you get to that, you go on some more fire road all the way to Flagstaff. And then you basically run on single track and fire road all the way down to like Phoenix, Mesa, Scottsdale, um, eventually getting to Tucson and then all the way to the border of Mexico. But it's a combination of single track, fire road, and a little bit of pavement. Holy shit, dude. Just the fact that the Grand Canyon's this tiny little smidge of that. I, I did the uh I hiked rim to rim to rim this last year. Oh nice. And it was uh it was humbling. I I wasn't like in trail mode or that ultra running mode or anything. And we just hiked it too. But I mean, just the fact that that's like a fraction of the Arizona Trail is hilarious to me. <laughs> but that was uh, actually my first time doing the Grand Canyon. <laughs> that's an that's an epic trail. Yeah. Yeah. That's I remember beautiful. like going up South Rim. And like, um, I have a watch where it like shows like the elevation profile of the route that you export onto your watch. And I remember going up South Rim, like it felt like an hour or so. And I was just like, man, I got to be getting close. And then I like went through my watch to see where I was at in relation to the climb. 
And like, I was, I wasn't even near half, like it blew my mind how much climbing there was to get out of that Canyon. <laughs> did you guys do, uh, uh, you said you went up the South rim or did you do uh bride angel? I went down North and then I, I think it was the There's South two rim. ways. Okay. So I, I dropped curious. down, I followed the river and I got to a phantom ranch. Then I crossed the bridge and then just went straight up that trail the other side. Okay. I, I think I was, just, there's like, there's technically two that go up to South Rim. Regardless, I was just curious. We, we did the Bright Angel one, but it, both of them are just insanely steep. And it's the same thing. <laughs> like when we were coming back up, we're like, how are we not close to the top yet? Because <laughs> it's, it's just, I mean, it's just so damn steep. I mean, it's basically a mile uh, from the river all the way up to the top. Um, man. So what happened during the, uh, the Arizona trail FKT attempt? Like yeah. as far as uh, what, what, what made you drop out? So about three weeks before I had a pretty significant ankle sprain, um, like it was bad, but I, I did like a lot of treatments. I did ozone therapy. I don't know if you've ever done that before or not. Uh, basically though, I got to, it's really like, it's painful, (laughs) but they, uh, they inject ozone gas at the site of your injury and it basically increases ATP production, which will speed up your healing. And so they do it under your skin or yeah they take a big needle and just inject you with it um so they injected me right in my ankle and i did that probably four or five times um so i did like ozone therapy i took like a lot of anti-inflammatory supplements i did a carnivore diet just to like really reduce reduce the inflammation and so i did get to a point where like it looked good it felt good and but i do think i was doing a lot of compensating because I just started getting issues that I've never had before. Like I had shin splints, which I never get. My hamstring <clears throat> started cramping. My Achilles started hurting. My calves started hurting. So I just think I was doing a lot of compensating. Um, that slowed me down a little bit. But also that trail, like I don't want to sound ungrateful, but that trail is the worst trail I've ever been on. <laughs> like I'll, I'll need to send you some videos that I took. But like there's times I couldn't even see a trail. It was just like weeds. I had to like pull my map out and just legit, just like watch myself on the line to make sure I was on the trail. So there's a ton of overgrowth, um, a ton of route finding. Basically I got to mile 600 and I had 75 hours to get the FKT for those final 200 miles, which I mean, I thought was doable just because all of my 200 mile races, like recently I've been doing between 50 and 55 hours. But like in my head at that time, how slow I was going, how much pain my shins were in and just with how overgrown the trail was, I knew it wasn't realistic and I didn't want to just finish it just to finish. Like I knew that if I finished, I wouldn't come back and I, I know I can get the FKT. So I ended up dropping as kind of like a carrot to help me come back to it and then actually try to go after the FKT again. Do you plan on going after it anytime soon? I mean, I was originally planning on being out there right now, <laughs> but, uh, the snow, like mm-hmm. this, like, I don't know if you've seen pictures of the grand Canyon right now, but like, there's no way uh-huh. I could do it right now with how much snow there is in the Northern really? section. And so I'm looking at maybe doing it this spring or sorry, this fall, but fall is when I did it last time. And that's when it's overgrown and I don't really care to deal with that again. So it might be a year from now, um, at the latest, but potentially this fall. That's challenging, man. Can you, do people go from South to North, like in hopes of all the snow would be melted if you do it in the spring, I guess, or, or do you kind of have to go North to South? 
So if you do the spring, you typically need to do north to south because it's like it's 90 degrees in Tucson right now. Oh, that makes sense. Um, sorry. Wait, I said that backwards. What am I trying to say? <laughs> okay. You'd probably want you, the hot part to be towards the end, right? No, you want that to be the start actually. Oh, okay. okay. So t- typically you do um, south to north in the spring and then okay. north to south in the fall just because. So when, when I did this, um, actually me and my buddy Ben Light, <clears throat> we did this thing where we tried racing each other for the FKT. And so I started on the north end, he started on the south end, uh, and then we okay. raced each other. Um, neither of us made it. <laughs> but did you guys pass each other at some point? No, basically he made it 200 miles and I made it 600. So we basically dropped at the same point. <laughs> oh, <dang. laughs> yeah. Um, Man. But anyway, yeah. So like he, I'm sure one of the reasons he dropped is like two or three days after I got past the Grand Canyon, they got a pretty big snowstorm. And so that's why you want to start on the north end in the fall because the chances of snow coming down increase, um, you know, as the year progresses. So yeah, typically it's north to south in the fall and south to north in the spring. So you can get away from the heat before it gets too hot in the spring. So, uh, we got, went on a crazy side tangent there about Cocodona. Um, yeah. but Co- Cocodona is in three weeks from now, you said? So Cocodona is in three weeks. Um, I'm on the wait list for Western States. I don't know how realistic it is. I'm going to get in. So if I don't get in, I'm going to do, it's a new hundred called the crazy mountain 100. Um, that's actually the one I paced Cam Haynes at last year. Where's that uh, one at? Montana. <clears throat> okay. And then in September, I'm doing a new 200 up in the Canadian Rockies. Um, and then I'm either going to go after the Arizona Trail FKT or um, do some other different FKT. But I, I do want to do some kind of FK attempt, FKT attempt this fall. Man, that's a that's a slam pack 2023 for you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what's the uh, what's the 200 in Colorado? In Canada? Or sorry. I, I meant Canada, not Colorado. Sorry. That's <laughs> no, okay. The, you, the one you I'm said doing Rockies is a, and I was thinking of Colorado. <laughs> yeah. It's the new, it's, um, Oh crap. What's it called? The divide 200. So this okay. is the inaugural year for that one. And it's September and yeah, it's just like up in Alberta and the Canadian Rockies. Nice man. That one I'm sure will be very, uh, uh, what, what are ultra, what do you guys, what do you ultra runners call it? Um, it's got a lot of teeth on the, looking at the elevation map where it's just like, Oh, jagged the vert a uh, lot of vert the vert yeah yeah <laughs> See, I, i'm not into the ultra space honestly. <laughs> yeah, there, yeah it's a yeah there's a lot of vert <laughs> nice man which one are you looking to a particular race uh out of all those is the one you're looking forward to the most um just i would say cocodona in that canadian 200 um cocodona i have kind of a weird history with that one <clears throat> um two years ago was the inaugural year and I went out and did it and I ended up having to, it was my second DNF. I had to drop and go to the hospital. Um, oh, I don't, do, do you know what rhabdomyolysis is? Yeah. 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 So I ended up, I started peeing Brown peeing blood. <laughs> and so I ended up dropping at mile one fifty. went to the hospital and I had rhabdomyolysis, which is basically too much muscle breakdown leaking into your bloodstream. And then your kidneys have a hard time filtering it. It's, it's basically premature kidney failure. <laughs> Is there um, anything you can do to prevent that? Stay hydrated. <laughs> with with because uh, it's essentially, from my understanding, it's a it's an imbalance of your your fluids and your electrolytes, right? Yeah, yeah. I made the stupid mistake. There's like this 23 mile section at the start. It's mile 10 to mile 33 or something, 
it's super steep. Like you're gaining almost 8,000 feet from what I can remember. And it's super hot, super exposed, and it's 23 miles. There's no water. So you have to carry all that water. And I did not carry enough water. And so I got to the point where I was just like desperate. And I was like seriously concerned that I was going to (laughs) die. And so I ended up like just out of desperate, desperateness. Was that the right word? Desperation. Thank you. (laughs) Um, Just out of desperation, like I started opening my electrolyte packets and just dumping that in my mouth. Cause in my head, I was just like, I can't get water, but hopefully like I can get my electrolytes, which obviously isn't right. <laughs> and right. so, yeah, it's, it's an imbalance of your water an imbalance of your electrolytes, just getting severely dehydrated basically. Um, so yeah, just stay hydrated. <laughs> like, Shit. Um, Dude, that's uh, the crazy part about that is like, you'd already done several 200s at that point, right? You'd already done several hundred mile races and that just shows how, how many variables and mm-hmm. how many things can go wrong in these really long distance races? Well, so the biggest thing I learned from that, like I live in Utah. Um, I remember the week before that race, it started snowing here. And so like we drove, I basically got there two days before the race and we went from like snowing weather to high nineties. <laughs> and so that was a huge shock for my body. So that taught me last year I went back, <clears throat> I went two and a half weeks early. I got on Airbnb and I just like focused on heat training And last year went really well aside from some issues, but like, um, they had to reroute the course because there was a fire. And so I didn't end up, I wasn't able to do that section that beat me up that 23 mile section. And so I'm going back this year because like, I got to finish the actual course. So, so I am excited to get out there and finish the actual course, but then that Canadian Rockies one, you know, it's a new race. It's a new area. There's a prize purse for the first top three finishers. So that one's going to be exciting too. <laughs> Dang. So that's the other thing with these races. You're not necessarily just going out to finish. I mean, I know that's part of it, but you're like top of the top of the pack winning a lot of these races, right? I'm trying to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Have you, uh, when you did Cocodona last year, where did you come in for that one? I got second. Second. Who, who beat you out on that one? Um, his name is Joe McConaughey. Uh, his nickname is Streambean. Technically, oh, he's okay. Let's say technically he's beat me twice because his FKT on the Arizona Trail is what I was going after last fall. Oh, a little <laughs> yeah. bit of rivalry there. <laughs> Not really, but <laughs> friendly just, competition. Yeah, <laughs> man. But how about this year for for Cocodona? Is there uh, uh, like a course record? I guess that you're you're trying to beat or just just win the race or what's your goal for that one? Yeah. So technically there's two course records because last year was a reroute. So the, what the, the last year's course was easier. There was less climbing. You didn't have that really hard section that beat up a lot of us. Um, so there technically are two course records. Um, I'm just going to go after the course record of the original course, which, uh, the winner of the inaugural year, he's actually doing it again this year. And I remember like right where I dropped, um, the first year he was basically right there. We were just right next to each other. Um, so he'll be there. That'll be fun to compete with him. But yeah, the the course record for the current course is 72 hours. Um, the the course record for the reroute course is 59 hours. It would be cool to beat that, but um, I'm just shooting for the actual course record on this original course. Jeez. When, when you're thinking about, um, when you're setting a goal for, for each race, are you looking at, you know, what time you think is going to challenge you the most or are you looking at past times or course records or some of your competition or how do you kind of go about that 
I mean, at this point, I'm looking at the course records. Um, that's kind of what I want to go after. I haven't always done that. Like, I mean, in all honesty, I used to just compete just to push myself. But then um, in 2019, so the first year I did the Triple Crown of 200s in 2017, I did it in like 205 hours was the total time between all three. And I felt like I left a lot on the table, like the IT band issues, the stomach issues. I, I got a stress fracture at the Moab 240, which slowed me down a lot. So I felt, even though I won the Triple Crown that year, I felt like I could do way better. So in 2019, I went back just with the intent of just beating my time. Like I wanted to beat it by 10 hours. So I was hoping to get under 200 hours. And that was legit like my only goal. <clears throat> but um, this might sound like a funny statement, but like I ended up somehow winning all three of the races that year. <laughs> um, and so I you, said, won, you won all three of the 200s and obviously at the triple crown too? Yeah. <laughs> and I ended oh, up setting shit. some kind of course record at each of the races that year too. And so, um, I ended up shaving, it was over 40 hours off of my time. I went from like 205 hours to 160 something hours. Holy shit. Um, so that, that, thank you. <laughs> um, but that was kind of like the experience where I was just like, like I had a, a paradigm shift basically, like up to that, those three races, I was just racing to compete against myself and then after those three races, I was like, okay, like maybe I can be good at this. Like maybe I actually can, can compete at these races. So that was about the time when I started actually like trying to race to get on the podium and set records. Dude, um, after that's, that. uh, that's incredible, man. I mean, again, I think for the average person, um, and for you at one point, it was just like, go out and finish. And so to now be racing these and, and going for the wins, just a whole nother level of eliteness. If that's a word, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think it's like the thing I always try to tell people, like, you know, if I can do it, anybody can do it. Like growing up overweight, breaking my back, racing, just a race. And like, not even intending to win all three of those races that year in 2019. Like, seriously, I'd never imagined myself as somebody that could compete at these kind of races. So, you know, I just, I try to let people know that like, you know, if that can happen for me, it can honestly happen for anybody that wants it to happen. What What do you think makes you different? I mean, I, I know you say that anybody can do it, but like, obviously you have something that a lot of people don't, and, and not that it's a physical thing, but maybe some kind of mental thing that you've unlocked or like, what do you, what do you think sets you apart from a lot of these other runners or just humans in general? I mean, I think like I, I've, ha I have kind of a messed up past, <laughs> um, with my trauma that I've mentioned a couple of times. So like, I've had a lot of bad things happen to me. Um, we've covered a few of those today, like with the back and being overweight and stuff, but like, you know, I I've had the opportunity you could say to suffer a lot throughout my life. So, I mean, I'm not perfect at it. Like, you know, I still get upset when I have to suffer, but I do feel like I have a, a higher threshold for like suffer the ability to suffer. Um, the biggest thing though, like if me and you were to race each other at Boston, you'd destroy me. Like I'm not a fast runner. <laughs> um, I, I feel like I'm really good at just like going at a very okay, consistent pace for a long period of time. Um, I'm good at operating on little sleep, which, you know, a lot of these 200 mile races, the front runners who just to give you an example, <clears throat> when I did the year that I won Bigfoot in 2019 for the first time and set a new course record, 
Um, I, I was probably like in fifth place for most of that race. Um, everybody just kind of took off and then those five people ended up blowing up. Um, I remember I passed the guy who was in first at mile 150 and he looked wrecked and I ended up beating him by almost four or five hours. And so it's not common for like, you know, this Coca-Dona 250 race in three weeks, they live stream it. Um, I don't know how exciting it is because it's five days of live streaming a 200 mile race, but like, you know, it's, it's not going to be uncommon for those who are watching the live stream. Like it's, it's very, it's very common for them to see me like, you know, in 10th place or something like that for the first day or day and a half. Um, I just let people go do their things and I just let my consistent slow turning burn, turn and burn pace or whatever you want to call it, get me to the finish line. So just consistent and then um, good at operating on little sleep, which is kind of huge for 200 mile races. It's like the the tortoise in the hair. It's like, yep. <laughs> I, th- I think with any kind of you know endurance event, it's the people that go out and burn themselves out too quickly. They're all excited. They're the ones that usually end up back of the pack because it's it's just that consistent, relentless forward progress. And it sounds like you've really just you've nailed down. You know, you've you figured it out basically. I I don't like talking about myself. I I do feel like I've (laughs) figured some stuff out. (laughs) Well, uh, dude, so where, where do you see all of this going? Like you've got some big plans this year. I know. Do you have like a a five, 10 year, like a long-term goal for, for Mike McKnight? Yeah. The big goal I'm getting ready for, um, I don't know when I'm going to do it. I'm hoping within five years, but I want to go after the Appalachian trail FKT. Um, and which is, just barely over 40 days at this point, I think. Um, but it's about, it's 2,100 miles. It's a, it's a very, very, very long journey. (laughs) So that's kind of what everything's building up to right now. When, when do you expect to take that on? Well, so I want to finish the Arizona trail first. I want to be able to do 800 miles. I want to find another FK to to go after, which is like a thousand to 1300 miles. So kind of like the half the distance of the Appalachian trail. And then I want to do the Appalachian trail. So, you know, if I can do the Arizona trail next year, maybe take a year off from something like that and then do like a 1200 mile FKT in 2026 and then go after the Appalachian trail in 2027 or 2028. Dude, that's uh that's going to be exciting, man. I, I feel like you're literally pushing the the limits of, I, you are pushing the limits of, of, human possibilities and, and what we currently think is possible. Um, I mean, we didn't, we haven't even talked about like your zero calorie hundred mile. <laughs> there's just all these course records and it's, there's just so much that you've done. It's so incredible. And you're, you're just continuing to push the limits of what is humanly possible. Well, I think there's a lesson to learn there. Cause like, I feel like most of the stuff I've done and succeeded at are things that I necessarily didn't care to like win. <laughs> and like, I mean, to be honest with you, I feel like ever since 2019, when I won those three races, it did well at helping me with my confidence, but I do feel like it's hit or miss on how well I do at a 200 now. And I, a lot of me wonders if that's because I'm like racing to compete versus just like racing to better myself. Um, so I do think that there's something to that where, you know, if you get too caught up in just trying to beat other people that you open up the window for a lot of things to go wrong versus just like kind of, taking care of yourself, running by feel, eating food at aid stations, taking a nap at aid station, just like literally taking care of yourself and racing to better yourself. Like 
I do think that there is more power in what you can do if you do it that way versus just like racing to be a winner. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a good mindset to have for for somebody even like myself who was wanting to get into 100 mile races, 200 mile races, these, these really long distance endurance events. Where would you recommend they start? Depends where they're currently at. <laughs> I so mean, let's, every- say, let's say it's somebody who, you know, just like a typical recreational runner who's maybe done a couple half marathons, maybe a marathon, um, not done like anything too crazy long, but they want to eventually work up to a hundred mile race or longer. Yeah, I would, uh, two things. So develop consistency, um, whether that, so like the people that I coach, like I make sure that they know, like, I believe in the 80, 20 rule where if you're doing 80% of the plan, then 20% is okay if you need some kind of deviation. And so I, I try to like tell people, you know, even if, so like, say I have, we'll bring Pierce back up, (laughs) say I have him scheduled to do like six miles today and just like life got in the way and he can't do six miles. I try to let people I coach know like, Hey, if you can't do that, at least get out and try to do like 20 to 30 minutes for one. Chances are you're going to end up doing those six miles because like getting out the door is the hardest part. (laughs) Uh, but second of all, just like 20 to 30 minutes in my opinion is enough to like keep the base, like at least where it was. And so be consistent, even if it's just like 20 to 30 minutes a day, even if it's cross training, like if you don't have time to run, if your knee hurts, if you have IT band pain, go hop on the bike instead. Like you don't have to just sit on the couch. So be consistent. And then kind of like my back experience, you know, I didn't go out and just run like I worked up to it. And so like figure out what's best for you and like work up to that distance. So, you know, for most people that means like, slowly breaking the glass ceiling. Like if 50 K seems too challenging, sign up for a 50 K break that glass ceiling, then start focusing on a 50 miler because if 50 K is too intimidating, then chances are you're not going to finish a 50 miler. (laughs) So just like figure out what those glass ceilings are for you and just break those and then just work up to the 200 mile distance and along the way, just be consistent. That's beautiful, man. Yeah. That consistency is, is one of the most important things. And I love what you mentioned there about it's better to go tell yourself, okay, I'll just go do 20 to 30 minutes if I don't have time for a full six miles or whatever it might be. And I tell a lot of athletes that I coach the same thing. I'm like, if you, do, if you don't have time to go do it, just go out and do five, 10 minutes. Because usually, like you said, as long as you get out the door and you've got your running shoes on and uh, you're, you're more than likely just going to start, you're just going to do the whole workout anyways, because you're already there to do it. So yeah, that consistency is very powerful. But um, man, I'm super, super excited to see all this stuff you've got coming up this year and uh, eventually taking on the the Appalachian Trail FKT. <laughs> if anybody can do that and, and set that FKT, I think it's you. Thank you. I appreciate that. I hope so. Yeah, man. I know you, <laughs> I love how you're just such a humble guy. It's just like any, ever, any other ultra runner. It's like, you guys are doing these insane things. You got to talk about it more. Oh, <laughs> uh, I, I try. I try to talk about it. <laughs> I was going to tell it, you too, you're friends with Matt Choi, right? Yeah. 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 I was just talking to him a couple of weeks ago, but um, I don't know how serious he was about it, but he said he wants to come up here and like run in the mountains that I train in. So, you know, it'd be fun if, if you want to join him and get up here and I can show you around. Dude, I would love to, man. If you're ever down here in Austin, uh, we don't have any mountains down here, but we can, <laughs> we can run fast on the road. We could, I don't know. We can, we can do some, uh, some track workouts or something with you. <laughs> All right. That'd be cool. <laughs> yeah, man. Um, where's a, a good place for people to find you? I know you've got a podcast website, all that stuff. Where's the best place for people to find you at? Yeah. So Instagram is where I do a lot of my communication. It's just, uh, at the low carb runner. And then, uh, my website is, 
I should know my own website. <laughs> I, I don't think there's the in front. I think it's just lowcarb-runner.com. So lowcarb-runner.com. Um, I'll put it in the description so people can click okay. on it. <laughs> yeah, those are the two biggest places that people can reach out to me. And I, I have no issues giving out my email. It's at, or sorry, it's the low carb runner at gmail.com. That's beautiful, man. Well, dude, I really enjoyed this. Um, there's so many other things I actually want to talk about, but we'll just, we'll save it for another podcast. Just cause right. you're, you're such an interesting guy and like, you're just doing some incredibly, just incredible things. And, um, I don't know. I could sit here and ask you questions all day, but I know you're busy. Yeah. You probably got, steak to eat and miles to run and mountains to climb so i'll, I'll let you go but uh thank you dude, this is a ton of fun man thanks for coming on yeah thanks for having me i appreciate it thank you so much for tuning into the show if you enjoyed this episode please make sure to subscribe to the channel leave a review and share it with a friend and thank you to our sponsors of this episode first is lagoon sleep make sure to go to lagoonsleep.com jeremy and take their two minute online sleep quiz to find your match for your perfect pillow and use the code jeremy for 15 percent off your first purchase next is soothe organic cbd use the code soothe with jeremy for 20 percent off your first order of soothe organics premium cbd products and finally two before performance nutrition Use the code JMiller for $10 off your order at 2before.com and you can feel the powerful benefits of New Zealand blackcurrant berries. We'll see you in the next one.